Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. And now we've come to our scripture reading for today. The sermon text comes from Ruth chapter 4, verses 9 through 17. Please feel free to follow along on the screens or in your Bible. There are also Bibles under the seats that you are welcome to use. Ruth 4, 9 through 17. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have brought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her a conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. Merry Christmas to you. Let's uh, pray as we get started here. Heavenly Father, we uh, come together this morning to try to fill up our minds and fill up our hearts with the idea, the truth, that um, this wild historical claim that you came at the right time for the ungodly, you entered into the world in the flesh. And you took on all the evil, all the suffering, all the pain. It is a wild thing for us to think about. And um, had it not been for your willingness to condescend and come into this earth and come in to be uh, alongside us and feel and suffer and wrestle with the same things that we do, uh, I wouldn't have any hope and I, I wouldn't have a future. Uh, but, but you've done that. And so... Uh, God, help us this morning, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts to, to receive your good gospel, your wonderful gospel uh, this morning, and be with those and bless those who could not be here, and may our minds and hearts and um, even um, acts of service reach out to them in this season. Uh, help me this morning as I speak your words of life. Uh, it's in Jesus' name, amen. After a scripture reading like this, on a day like this, you could be thinking, particularly if you weren't here over the last month at all, 
You could be thinking it was, it would be, it's strange and it's weird for us to come in on a Christmas Eve service and uh, have a, a, a text reading um, that's not highlighting <laughs> the birth of Christ directly. Um, you know, why read from a book of the Bible with no mention of Christ at all? And the answer to that would be because as many Christians have historically come to understand, Christ is on every page. He's, uh, even when he seems hidden, he's there. And that's true of your life. Um, that's true of your Christmas. Christ is showing up in your life. He is weaving your story into his story. But sometimes it's admittedly hard to see when he's there. And at times, um, that's been true of this story. Really hard to see where God is and what he's up to in this story. If you've been following along with Ruth 1, Ruth 2, Ruth 3... Um, that Ruth's story, if you remember, if you're familiar with it all, it began in real tragedy. It began with a family, a husband and a wife and two sons, um, Naomi and Elimelech. And they were in a famine and they had to move out to a place called Moab. They had horrible hardships. They had to move to this foreign land, this land full of people that were an enemy to God's people. And Naomi's husband dies shortly after that. Um, Elimelech dies in, in this foreign land. And eventually the two sons marry. They, they marry two Moabite women in this land. And, uh, but then um, and 10 years goes by and these two women experience barrenness and they have no children. And after about a 10-year stretch of that, the two sons pass away. And uh, this leaves three widows, one of which simply returned home to her family. That was Orpah. But this main character, Ruth, she clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And um, out of love and loyalty to her, she stays with her and moves back to Bethlehem. But by the time they arrived, if you can remember this or you're familiar with this, in chapter 1, towards the end of chapter 1, Naomi expresses deep bitterness, deep despair. Life has been so hard on her. And she attributes this to God, and she feels hopeless. She feels empty. And that's just how she felt. And so what makes this story so inspiring for you is that, and what we just read, is that the ending of the story acts as a kind of grand reversal from the very beginning. The opening lines of the story were about poverty, infertility, and death. I mean, really, in the first five verses, it was like that. The ending of the story, though, speaks of marriage, provision, births, and love. It was a story that began in bitterness and despair, and it ends with hope and a promising future. It's called, the book is called Ruth, but in many ways it's been a story that's highlighting the journey of a woman named Naomi, the mother-in-law. And after all that tragedy in chapter 1, Naomi declared herself empty to the townswomen. And here at the end, it's funny how um, at the end she has a baby boy in her lap. And once again, we have a conversation with the, towns, <laughs> the town women, And they declare her to be, and these are their words, redeemed, restored, nourished, and loved. Loved. So when you explore the story like that, a story like Ruth, four short chapters. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to go home and read it this week. When you explore a story like this, what do you walk away with? What's your like main takeaway from a book and a story like Ruth? Because you've got to walk away with something more than just a sigh of relief and kind of warm, fuzzy feelings for Naomi and Ruth who had suffered so much loss. Here's something you might think or that might come to your mind. And that is you might say something like, or you might hear from others something like, learn to live like Boaz. Learn to live like Ruth. 
you know, look at Ruth and everything that she accomplished and did. Look at her loyalty, her, hum, her humility. She clung to Naomi even when moving back to Bethlehem as a Moabite girl was incredibly dangerous. Being a foreigner, kind of a, a poor refugee, if you will. And yet she was so committed, so humble the whole way through the story. Look at Boaz. Look at the character this guy had. He was compassionate. He looked upon a woman, a refugee woman, a foreign woman, a woman from an enemy people, and yet he's kind to her. And then one night she visits him, and he doesn't take advantage or anything like that. At least that's what we can tell in the storyline. But he's, So he's ethical. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's open-minded. He's all of these things. He's generous the whole way through. And so you could easily read the story of Ruth, and you can say, wow, look at what happens when you're selfless. Look at what happens when you're sacrificial. Look at what happens when you're incredibly generous to people, even when they don't deserve it. You should value commitment. You should value loyalty. Never forget the importance of generosity and sacrifice for the sake of other people. What a great message for you at Christmas. And there would be a lot of truth in that, right? Boaz and Ruth are models of faith in the darkness. They are lights that are shining in the midst of tragedy. And so it would make a lot of logical sense to say, look at Boaz, look at Ruth, go and do likewise. Let's pray. The problem, the problem with this approach, at least for me, is if you're like me at all, you just won't make it very far. While love and sacrifice can be mustered up sometimes, maybe you've done it so far fairly well this week, maybe, maybe. <laughs> the reality of it is, while you can muster it up sometimes, selfishness, egotism, fear, bad habits, these sorts of things, these things that you have, these things that you keep hidden, these things that we struggle with and we battle with, these things are always seems, they always seem to be lurking in the shadows. So you're going to run out of here this morning and you're going to try to be like Boaz and you're going to try to be like Ruth at your next Christmas dinner and you won't make it until dessert before you start thinking things, <laughs> saying things, acting out in ways. At least that'll be my story. There's a quote from David Zaw I like. He says this, here's the rub. Once you accept that you can improve yourself, you have only yourself to blame if you don't. When love and status are reserved only for those who are becoming more efficient and productive, what actually happens is that they remain just out of reach for all involved and our attention remains focused on ourselves rather than our neighbors. When I was a kid, I was ushered into church every Sunday morning, whether I wanted to go or not. A lot of times I didn't. I was ushered in Sunday mornings. I was ushered in Sunday nights. I was escorted in Wednesday for Bible studies. I was there a lot. I like to tease a lot up here and joke a lot about how I was practically born on a stage in a, in a church. I mean, I just spent my entire childhood in the church. Over time, with that kind of a 
start to your life over time because I was a normal, by the way, normal human kid. I developed a kind of distorted vision of Christians and a distorted vision of the Christian life and the church, a kind of bifurcation, if you will. The distortion that I created was thinking that most people are able to do the work. You know what I mean? You come into church and you see the the tucked-in shirts that we don't wear around here, and (laughs) (laughs) I grew up, you know, in a time and in a place and within a culture where the where we wore our best suits, and um, you know, I used to get smacked on the back of my head if I if I wore a hat into the church building and these sorts of things. And I I developed this distorted vision of the church that people, for the most part, have it figured out. You give them enough time, they get disciplined, and they they start to behave well. And, you know, with enough time, they read some Bible verses and they really get their act together. They really improve. And me, on the other hand, well, I had a particular penchant for doing bad things. The things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And trust me, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating for the sake of my point this morning. I had plenty of reasons to back this kind of perspective when I was a kid. I wasted a lot of afternoons and after-school detention. A lot. I can still remember the frequent exhaustion in my poor parents' face because they just didn't have the energy for another fight with me. So I won out a lot. After one particularly bad week of just being kind of overwhelmed with guilt as a young teenager. I, I remember bloodying my knuckles on a wooden chair out, out of just sheer frustration with myself. Now some, listen, some might call that like funny tales of a troubled teenager, you know? Teenagers that are just, you know, strange or hormonal and acting out, who knows? Maybe that's somewhat of the truth. I'm just simply trying to tell you guys this morning my version which I think is a normal kind of human battle, if you will. It was my version of my battle of facing my own flaws and wondering why in the world can I not improve myself? You know, I can put on a good show for a little bit, but eventually the sins, the failures, the foibles, they show up. Why can't I, by force of will, get my act together? Everybody else seems to do it at the church, but I can't. I'm not alone in that feeling. The Apostle Paul pretty much said the same thing. Romans 7, 21, he said, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. So in case you don't think that what I'm saying is in the Bible, right there it is in front of you. The truth that took years of struggle to understand, and I'm still learning it, by the way, I am am still in the process of learning it, is this is just not how our hearts are wired for lasting real change. And so for your Christmas Eve, what I would like to maybe put into your head is this kind of an idea, a theory, a a hypothesis, if you will, of this. What if actually, what if your heart doesn't need a better strategy to change? What if your heart just needs a better love story? 
Like, what if all of your acting out is because, and this might be difficult for some of you in this room, and some of you are like, amen, that's me. But what if all of your acting out and your lack of improvement or your lack of change is actually deeply rooted in this reality that you just are worried that you're not loved? What if? And what if getting a better love story into you would actually do the work that you can't seem to do. Because the reality is, as great as Ruth and Boaz are, and they are really great in the story, the God hidden in the shadows of the story is the real theme. You know, that's the real point of the story. The women in the story name it just in passing, didn't they? This is verse 14. It's the very front end of their statement. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Behind Ruth's loyalty was a God who never left them. Behind Boaz's compassion was a God who led Ruth into Boaz's field, who just happened to be the proper kinsman redeemer that could redeem their family, that could buy their ancestral land, that could marry Ruth and perpetuate their name and all of that. Behind, and this is important, behind Naomi's anger and despair in her harsh words, even towards God, was a God not taking offense at her words. And he was moving towards her anyway. Realize something, and I really think that this is important for you to hear, especially for those of you that have become familiar with the story of Ruth. Realize something. This story does end in redemption. However, Naomi's redemption wasn't an identical replacement, was it? Naomi didn't get her husband back in her lifetime. Naomi didn't get her sons back in her lifetime. Naomi didn't get back the years of living in poverty, uncertainty, and sadness. So what did Naomi get? What Naomi received was a God who loved her, who never left her, What she got was a God who loved her, never left her, and gave her a future, a very different future. And that was enough for Naomi. It was more than enough. And the proof, what was the proof? (laughs) The proof that Naomi could feel this sense of like, oh, God is, he really never left me. He isn't mad at me. He... He, he loves me. He, he, he wants me to have a future. What was the proof for Naomi? It was a baby. It was, it was a baby, a baby named Obed. What was the baby's name? Obed. Obed, that name means servant. You see, Naomi was being served up a healthy dose of redemption by grace the whole time. She just never really saw it coming. And I say grace because this is somewhat self-evident, right? But I say grace because regardless of any discipline or determination on Ruth and Boaz's part, a baby isn't something you can achieve or earn. It's a person that you receive from God by grace. And this is why um, the story of Ruth is an Advent story what we've been saying for the whole month. The story of Ruth is an Advent story. Because in the shadow of your losses, 
and you have many of them, in the shadow of your failures, and you have many of them probably, in the shadow of your best efforts and in your failures, you also were given a baby. That's the story of Advent. And this baby would grow up and restore your life back to God by giving up his own. This baby would nourish you by saying this, and this is John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This baby would grow up and love us all the way to the grave, even when we didn't love him back. And this baby would be a great descendant of who? <laughs> Obed. The son of Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner. And his name, of course, is Jesus. And he loves you in the shadow of your bad habits. He loves you in the place where you lack discipline. He loves you in the place where you have bad behavior right now. He loves you in the place where you have doubts. He loves you in the place where you're struggling to believe. He loves you in the place where you feel angry because your life hasn't worked out the way you thought it would. He loves you in spite of those flaws and everything that's lurking. Now, if you struggle, and because I've, my expectation is there's always going to be some people in the room that just are like, yeah, I don't believe him. <laughs> if you struggle at all to believe in what I'm saying, consider this, particularly on a day like this for Christmas Eve. Why, why in the world would Jesus leave heaven and he comes to earth? That's, that's the story, right? He comes to earth as a baby, vulnerable, weak, right? All of that. He enters into this earth, into a people, a place. He, he enters into, he chooses to, to attach himself to a lineage of people who, when you look at the list, are unwanted, ignored, deeply flawed. Sometimes they're too old. Sometimes they're too young. The list of flaws is long. Think about it, in a society in their day when the older son had higher status than the younger, God chose the younger Isaac over Ishmael. He chose the young liar Jacob, not the older Esau. He chose the younger runt David, not the older brothers. In a society that valued women only for their beauty and their fertility, God chose the older baron Sarah not the younger Hagar. God chose the unattractive Leah. Ugly Leah. That's what the Bible says. Those aren't my words. I never saw her. But God chose the unattractive Leah, the one he didn't love. He chose Leah, not the beautiful Rachel. God chose Ruth a foreign Moabite, and from an enemy people. God chose Mary, a poor teenager with zero social status. 
God chose Nazareth, Nazareth, an insignificant town. He did not choose Jerusalem. Why is that the pattern? <laughs> it's your entire, it's this, the whole thing is that's what it's telling you over and over and over again. It's supposed to be like this, but God does it this way instead. Over and over and over in the story, God moves in and through the people you least suspect. God always goes and moves through the boy that was ignored. He, he chooses the girl that no one wanted. God doesn't work in this particular way because he's sentimental. Please, hear me. He is not a Hallmark card. That's not why he does it that way. He works this way because every page in the scripture is pointing to a salvation by grace, not a salvation by status or achievement. If you have spent your whole life thinking that this is telling you a story, that the people that finally figure out how to be Boaz and Ruth are the people that will be saved, you are so, so wrong. And I am happy to tell you that. But if you are like me and you're sitting there thinking, I try to be like Boaz and I try to be like Ruth, I try to be committed, I try to be loyal, I try to be loving in spite of, I try to forgive and I'm struggling with it. God have mercy on a sinner like me. There is wonderful news for you. Merry Christmas. That's the story of the Bible. He does have mercy on you. Christmas is always asking you a question. Do you believe in a God that shows up in the darkness for undeserved people like me and you? Do you believe in that kind of a God? People who underneath are really searching to be known and loved despite our worst selves. I hope you do. Because if this is you, you were made for Jesus. You were made for him. And Jesus won't just love you to the bottom now. He'll love you to the end. Now, I am going to light this last candle for our season, the Christ candle, as we enter into our time of communion. And I would just encourage you simply to reflect on it, to look at that, and to consider how he is the light and hope of the world, that Christ loves you and is offering you a future, a future beyond your wildest imagination of no work of your own, because that's the kind of God he is. Now we come to the Lord's table. And what this bread, if you're new to this, Jesus gave us this, something practical, something tangible for us to feel, to touch, to taste, to remember. To, there's nothing magical here going on, but it is what it is, is it's the presence of Christ filling up our minds, filling up our hearts, reminding us of something. And that is, is that we are loved not because of what I have done or what you have done. We are loved because he is simply loving and merciful, and kind, and he has paid the price. This bread points us to and reminds us of Christ's body broken for us, and this cup of wine represents Christ's blood shed for us on the cross for my sins, for your sins. I hope it is what you're putting your hope and your faith and all of your belief in, that you're resting in this work, not your own work. Because, friend, your own work won't measure up but my guess is you already know that. 
And so this morning, you don't have to be a member of this church because I know we've got a lot of visitors, and that's wonderful for us. We love that. That station and that station up here, we have. We take a piece of the bread. We dip it in the wine or the juice. We have both for you this morning. You're just simply sitting here to pray, to reflect. If this is your profession, like your confession that Jesus is Lord, you're invited to come forward. You don't have to be a member, and you do not have to be sinless. You have to be someone that sees that, gosh, the more I will look at my sin, the more I'll hope in Jesus. That's the call of the gospel, and that's the, that is the requirement to come forward, that you need a Savior just like me. And so when you're ready, you come up and take part in this. If you, need, if you have questions or you need prayer, as always, the pastors will be in that prayer room over off to the side, and you're welcome to just come in there. We will pray over your suffering, over your sin, whatever you feel like you need. I'm so glad that you are here. I hope you have a wonderful Merry Christmas. I hope you love with, on your family and your friends. And I hope that you remember, gosh, it is really hard to improve ourselves. Thanks be to God that I am loved. Let's pray. Father, your word reminds us that we come in, maybe we come in places of joy, but a lot of us come in in a place where there's tears. And so, Father, we, we sow our tears in you, we sow our sadness in you, we sow our, our struggles in you, we give, over, we give to you our failures, we give over everything this morning to you in the hopes that you'll turn that around, you'll redeem that, and you'll give us something back that's very different. We have a future because of you, because of your son, living for us, dying for us, resurrecting for us. And we long and we wait for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.